Was the 1980s the best decade for theater? The house lights are flashing. Hurry to your seats. The show is about to begin. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. Hi, my name is Will, and joining me, as always, is my friend and co-host, Ray. Hey, I'm going to try and sound like I'm not having a stroke on this one, so <laughs> how's your day going, Will? It's going well. I feel so bad that I didn't stop <laughs> and say, wait a second, <laughs> and it's recorded. It's recorded that I didn't care about your health at that moment. <laughs> my priority was recording the podcast. Well, I think that's because you can see the look on my face yes. of like... I think I was actually still reading something, yes, and I just said, let the mouth go on to autopilot, <laughs> you know, and it yes. just did what it wanted, and I think my eyebrows were both going up and down <laughs> while I was talking, so. Yes. I have that on video, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. We'll have to, if I do any, if I let, publish any portion of the video, it'll just be you <laughs> stroking out. A little bit later, I'll be chatting with Peter Felicia, theater critic and historian, about whether or not the 1980s was the best decade for theater. But before that, here's 80s news. <laughs> This is getting looser as we... <laughs> it's just all going in there. Oh, hey, here's a big 80s news for you. Like and subscribe. Every time I'm just imagining, I keep forgetting to put a sign behind you. Mm-hmm. But when I remember I forgot that, then I remember to tell you to ask everybody, like and subscribe and share this uh, Well, we show. should we should get t-shirts that say like and subscribe, and yeah. we'll just wear the t-shirts <laughs> so that we actually see them. That's a smart idea, yeah. Because I'm looking at your Atari t-shirt yeah. thinking, ooh, asteroids. Yeah, I'm looking at yours thinking, I haven't watched Batman 66 <laughs> in a while. But in any case, let's talk about 80s news. Um, again, as always, there's no shortage of 80s news. Um, so in no particular order, have you seen the interesting bit of news that came out about uh, the Dark Crystal prequel? There's more news about that? Yeah, this is... Huh. So, okay, so... Uh, this was sort of, this was trending uh, on the social on social media. Uh, an interesting little fact about the Dark Crystal was the. Uh, let's see if I get his role right. Uh, he he was the one of the production designers for the puppets on the show uh, for the Age of Resistance, this prequel on Netflix. But and his name is Toby Froud. I hope I'm saying his last name right. F R O U D. Toby Froud. He's the design supervisor for the reboot of Dark Crystal, The Age of Resistance. But he was also the baby in Labyrinth. Oh, I just watched that this morning with Is my that kid. right? Yeah, we love that movie. So was it Sarah? It was his sister's name. Yes. So Sarah's little brother who gets kidnapped is Toby Froud, the designer of... I believe his name's even Toby in that movie, isn't is it? it? I don't remember that. I think it's Toby. I don't remember that. And but, I know his parents are freaking out because they want to do all this really dangerous stuff with him in that movie. Is that right? I oh, yeah. Like the director was trying to hang him over holes that just were like 40 <laughs> foot deep and just have him sit there on the edge. Now, this sounds a little bit like uh, Urban Legend. And no, I'll, this is not. I, I, I've actually okay. seen stuff about this. I only say that because uh, probably the reason Toby got to be in the movie and played that baby was because his father was the designer for Labyrinth and the original Dark Crystal. That's awesome. In fact, his, his father, who's Brian Froud, met his mother, Toby's mother, on the set of The Dark Crystal. She designed the Gelflings. We should get him yeah. on the show because I want him mm. to sign my Labyrinth poster. Okay, we'll do that. We'll so see if we we'll can send him an out. email and see if we can work that out somehow. So um, anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> that's awesome. It's so like this, you know, I don't know, interfamilial. That's, that's the circle of life. Yeah. Oh, 
I can see you now holding Toby over a cliff. <laughs> holding him over the his, cliff the as sun, his parents freak out. <laughs> as the sun comes up or goes down. Okay, uh, another bit of 80s news, and um, there's a lot of things here. I don't know if we're going to get to all of them. Maybe we'll talk about some, some of them some other time. Well, and, actually, we don't know a lot about theater, so we should probably get to all of It's going to be 40 minutes of 80s news. <laughs> um, have you seen the uh, preview for the new Rambo movie that's coming out? I did. It looks good. Yeah. Um, Rambo movies are cool. Did you see, I didn't know. So the first three Rambos all took, were all, uh, released in the 1980s. I didn't realize there was a Rambo four. I always, I heard about it, but I thought it was just like a dream maybe I had, but <laughs> did you see, I didn't see that one. I have not seen it yet because I forgot about it <laughs> until the new trailer came out yeah. and I'm like, ah, oh, now I got two of them to watch back to back. Yeah. I wonder if you need to see the last one. Probably not. Uh, I would say Yes. Because they're pretty good about the Rambo. The first three are in sequence, so I, I think, and and yeah. Sylvester Stallone's an amazing actor, so you're going to want to see his performance. Have you seen uh, Oscar? I mean, come on, when he's Oscar and he he plays like a normal person, <laughs> he doesn't beat anybody up. You remember that one? He's like uh, which one? Oscar. It's like set in the 1920s, Prohibition or something. He's mm-hmm. like a uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if he's a leader of a gang or. He's a very wealthy man. Who maybe huh. you know he's not because he plays against type. He wears glasses. Remember the period of time where Sylvester Stallone <laughs> started wearing glasses in every movie I do not to prove he was that. smart. What about Tango and Cash? He wears oh, glasses. Yeah, all right. He does wear them in Tango and Cash. He's like, I'm intelligent. I don't always have to turn my cap around and then get into a fight with somebody. Mm. Anyway, in Oscar, he's he tries to be very unlike himself. But I thought the Rambo Four, Ram, no Rambo Five. Five trailer looks like home alone but rambo that would be amazing I, I thought so too if they mix those two movies together yes and it was rambo five home alone yes and they just did the exact same thing yes where like people are breaking into his house and he's setting up traps for him and stuff mm-hmm. actually isn't that like rambo in general yeah i guess he's just in the woods oh so, yeah right? I, mean, I haven't seen it in so long but yes that's they could have actually done this one with macaulay calkin he's old enough yeah yeah no. he, he could have been out in the woods oh that rem- <laughs> That reminds me, this this uh, YouTubers that I follow, Corridor Crew, uh, these VFX guys that do these amazing special effects videos, you know, for their life, for their work, but also fun stuff on the video, on the internet. They did this one just a couple of weeks ago where they turned, uh, it was, what if Home Alone was R-rated? So they do make <laughs> it like, um, they I do a little edit where it's as if Macaulay Culkin's, Culkin's character, who I don't remember, is Ke- Kevin. Kevin, It's yes. as if Kevin is a serial killer who's led people to his house with a fake... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Air, Airbnb ad, and then oh, and then no. murders them slowly with paint cans, and it's pretty good. I'll have to put the link out there for it. Yeah, but I'm gonna have to check that one out because that sounds hilarious. <laughs> it's pretty good. It is pretty funny. I just also um, I just read something on ScreenRant.com that the original ending for Rambo three. So remember Rambo three, he goes to Afghanistan to save Colonel Trout or uh, Colonel Colonel Troutman um, from the Russians because Colonel Troutman was there helping the rebellion helping the rebels fight against the Russians. Again, guys, you have to remember, this is set in the late 80s, so it's different times, which is the point of this. Anyway, in the original ending of, or the ending of Rambo 3, he saves Troutman, they get out of there. The original ending, which was not in the movie, was he stays to help the Mujahideen fight. And that's, they didn't do that. But that's a little awkward, only because the Mujahideen is ultimately the group that becomes the Taliban, that helped Al-Qaeda. So Rambo would have been helping the group that became Al-Qaeda at the end of the 80s there. Hollywood made sure that they did the right thing and okay. did not go that well, route. Well, there you go. Because they said, uh-uh, we yeah. cannot do that. Well, you know, I wonder why they did edit it out. Because they couldn't have been able to foresee what would have happened, you know, what, 20, 30 years later. But they, they had better sense. They probably had someone like me 
on set who's like, politics, yeah. boo. <laughs> Take them back to America. You're right. Well, yes, that's the American part of it. Let's get out of here. Another thing about another 80s thing, and this is sort of, you know, we've been following this, so why not continue to follow it? A couple things about uh, semi-Ghostbusters, some of the, some things Ghostbusters related and some other things. So I guess taking a step back, Universal Studios, the theme park, um, they do a thing every Halloween um, where they have different mazes, horror mazes. And uh, they're, they're usually themed uh, based on some kind of popular uh, movie or TV show. They've had Stranger Things. They may even have that this year. Um, they have an Us, um, you know, the Jordan Peele movie, Us maze. But this year, they've had Ghostbusters for um, a while, I think a few years in a row. So they have a Ghostbusters one again, and I'll get back to that in a minute. But also interesting, uh, I thought, was this year they have a Killer Clowns from Outer Space horror maze. That is one of my favorite movies of all time. That's why I bring it up, yeah. Where are they? Where is that at? In Universal Studios. And I think this maze in particular is in California, but they might also have it in Orlando, Florida. It's still still a long drive for me either direction, but I would love to do that. It's like a 21-hour drive to Orlando, (laughs) I think. I did it once. Yeah. Only once. Well, maybe twice. Um, (laughs) But also while they were at this Universal Studios, um, so Dan Aykroyd and Ivan Reitman were there testing out the Ghostbusters maze for fun. But they also had an opportunity, some of the different outlets, including Entertainment Tonight, interviewed Ivan Reitman about the upcoming Ghostbusters movies, and he revealed um, that uh, a little bit about Paul Rudd's role. We talked about this a few episodes ago, that Paul Rudd's in the movie is the star of it. He is playing a seismologist who is called to a small town to investigate a mysterious earthquake. Um, and he's also working as a, uh, a school teacher. So... I don't know if that's his cover story or it's... Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like he's probably... The cover story is probably yeah. the teacher thing then. Maybe. Or, yeah, maybe being a seismologist doesn't pay enough. I mean, it could just be a part-time job. <laughs> Who knows? The way they write these things, they'll surprise us somehow. Um, and then also, regarding Ghostbusters, we learned that... Um, and this also came out pretty new. And this is not from Ivan Reitman, but that Ernie Hudson is in the movie. Which is good. Yeah. I think that's everybody then, except for um, Harold Ramis, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I think we got all the originals back now. Ernie Hudson, when he was last asked about this, I think last year said no, he hadn't been contacted. He then, though uh, it's our understanding, he then reached out to Jason Reitman and said, hey, you're making a Ghostbusters movie, what's going on? But we learned about Ernie Hudson being in the movie because he did a cameo. Do you know what these cameo videos are? You can pay an, uh, different celebrity and, and pseudo-celebrities on this website called Cameo, you give them 20, 40 bucks, and they'll record a personalized video to you or to whomever as a gift. You know, they send it to you. It's on their iPhone. Huh. Yeah. I mean... That sounds kind of shysty. Yeah. I mean, you would think... You would be hope that your favorite stars would be make, have made enough money that they don't have to do a Cameo, but... I don't know. It seems like a lot of CGI effort on their <laughs> part to trick me into thinking Ernie Hudson wished me a happy birthday. Um, they do seem or, to be... Or it's just the complete wrong celebrity. So, Ernie Hudson's in it. So, that, yeah, we've got everybody now, and that's uh, great. And that was 80s news. I don't you have anything dun, else? Dun, 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 dun. So, are we going to actually get to the yeah, topic of the day I think now? you're just stalling now. Yeah, I am. I'm actually okay. stalling because I really don't know a lot about theater. Well, that's okay. I mean, look, you know what, for me, so this, so, so in a little while, I'm going to play an interview that I had with Peter Felicia, a theater critic, um, to help us determine whether or not the 1980s was the best decade for theater. But it's it's fine that you don't know, because that's part of this exploration, I think. And for me, so I grew up, you know, in Jersey, as you know, we've said this before, in Jersey City, New Jersey, which is on the Hudson River opposite Manhattan. So a lot, everything, you know, the different commercials, TV shows, et cetera, that we got were New York. It was just, you know, and living in New Jersey, as New Jersey's, the, the residents are the same today, 
they don't know that there's anything outside of that area. <laughs> we've got everything right here, including, and I still hear this today, we've got the best pizza. I mean, look, the pizza in the area is great, fantastic. You can find good pizza in other states. <laughs> it's bread <laughs> with cheese and sauce on it. You know, it's not uh, cracking DNA or something like that. But in any case, so I'm curious um, what someone like you who grew up in the Midwest, what your perception, knowledge, experience, if anything at all, with theater, like what we think of as Broadway theater today, or what is Broadway theater, and also just theater generally. Like, did you have any exposure to theater? Well, as far as theater goes, when we were in grade school, which I don't even know if they do it anymore, we did plays when I was in grade school, and I loved it. I actually loved being in plays when I was a kid, but you got to learn a lot of lines, and then as you get older, and then you go, I can do plays, or I can go out back behind the school and drink and smoke. <laughs> um, and then you find out about, well, I could be in a band, and then I got to just learn like, like you know, three, seven, three chords. Yeah, 17 words or 20 words, and I got a song. Yeah. So now it's like, eh. I see. But the upside was is, yes, I really did like being on stage, which turned into being in bands. Mm. So it's kind of, it's very similar. Because as you know, with my one band, I had a lot of theatrics going on sure. on stage and, you know, all kinds of silly gimmicks and whatever. So, And what was it that, since it was, since your rock shows were theatrical, what was it that you were exposed to that inspired you or gave these ideas that you could even do these kinds of things on stage? Well, that would be the other bands okay. who were like rock theater, like Alice right. Cooper and Kiss and, you know... Just all the bands who brought a big stage show. Right. Alice Cooper's the big one, because he was the first concert I ever went to, and he had the guillotine where he cut his own head off, and the giant monster stomping right. around the stage. So I've always thought that theater and rock music were kind of combined when, and it still goes on today with Marilyn Manson and all those right. bands. So, But I always thought it was always fun to be on stage and act. I enjoyed it. Right. Or Iron Maiden with Eddie. Or Yeah, or yeah, or the, the, the plane they used to have that would come out for mm. Aces High. There's just, yeah. there's a fine line between, you know, heavy metal, rock and roll, and theater. Just long hair and spandex, I guess. That's theater, too. I guess, what's theater, right? I mean, theater is you go somewhere, you see a live show. I mean, obviously, I'm going to be talking to Peter about uh, New York theater, and then also also what branched out from New York theater, you know, as far as national touring companies, etc. So we're talking about a different kind of theater, but... A live performance, yeah. So maybe that was your experience then, theater-wise. Did you, were you aware of, so, you know, ultimately, when you think of the 1980s, all right, how about this? Because you probably know more than you, you know, you, I know you know more than you're, you're letting on. In the 1980s, you could think of some big plays. Yes, I can think of Cats. Right. Phantom of the Opera. Right. But once again, those are the big ones. Yeah. But actually, there's another one called Forbidden Broadway. Sure. That I actually saw. Is that right? Yeah, I actually saw that one. And that was actually from the 80s. And um, obviously, I wouldn't see another one for, I don't know, 20 years. But (laughs) I saw that one, and I enjoyed it, because I like going to live performances. So how did you get to see Forbidden Broadway? Um, I think at the time... Did you see it in New York, or you saw it? No, I saw it it here. So it was like a traveling... Yeah, it was here um, at... At uh, the local Playhouse Square. Oh, okay. Very good. And, um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I don't even remember how I ended up there, but I ended up there. I saw it. And I I enjoy anyone who goes out and performs in public. I give them huge, huge credit for just doing it. 
because it's not easy for everyone to just walk in front of a crowd and sure. just do your thing. So, but it was really entertaining. And is Forbidden Broadway? That's that review show where they do like different. Uh, I think so. Yeah, Broadway snippet. I'll look. There's it something up. about a plane or something. Oh, but so yeah, so you know Phantom and Cats, and those are huge in the '80s. And as we'll find out, and not going to surprise anybody, that those were not only big as far as box office, but big as far as their impact on theater. So how did you know about those? Were there commercials out on TV at the time? Or did you find out about them later when you were out I'm of the a, 80s? No, I'm assuming it was just from either TV, pop culture references, or other people that I knew who were much more cultured than I was who talked about it. <laughs> right. So I find it interesting because, again, being from New Jersey where I'm from, you know, they had commercials for theater all the time. You know, come to Broadway and see this show. And at the time, because I was of that mindset that what else is there outside of this New York, you know, area, I didn't even anticipate that those would have been advertised anywhere else throughout the country, you know. <laughs> but as, of course, I come to learn, there's a business, as you know, of tourists coming in Times Square and seeing shows. Not so much in the 70s and 80s as there are now, because Times Square was very different. There was a different kind of theater that was very popular in Times Square at the time, an adult theater. They showed very different types of <laughs> productions. They were still live, but different shows. Um, so it's surprising to me when I hear from people that, yeah, no, I got that commercial for Phantom, you know, out here in whatever, Ohio or something like that. Yeah, I actually think we got the commercial for the New York one. Yeah. And then I think it might have just had like a, also in Cleveland. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. It had that little disclaimer at the bottom that they whispered, huh. but they wanted you to come to New York to see it. I see. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess when I talk to Peter later, we'll hear that how touring companies evolved and actually they, well, I don't want to give any spoilers. You're going to have to listen to that interview and find out that I have some theories about 1980s theater that Peter either proves or disproves just with facts. Huh. Facts. So we've talked once before and you know, I, I, we don't, I don't want to go, go into this over again, but so we, we talked about this a few episodes ago about how many 1980s movies have been made into shows, into theatrical shows, many of which wound up on Broadway. And I'm just going to run through this list real quick. Nine to Five, Big, Color Purple, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Flashdance, Fame, Footloose, Ghost, Hairspray, Pretty Woman, Xanadu. Now we can add Beetlejuice to the list because that just came out. And also Tootsie is a new one that came out this year. Are you going to say something? It actually reminded me that I was yeah. working on my American Werewolf in London. Yeah. Theatrical. Wait, um, what? Is this, yes. Is this news? Yeah. I actually was, was thinking, wouldn't it be great if yeah. American Werewolf in London mm-hmm. was on Broadway? Oh. And a horror musical. Yes. A horror mm-hmm. comedy musical. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. So, you know, um, Jack and David, they are standing outside of the slaughtered lamb right. on stage and they're talking. And then just as they open the door, the whole stage re- twists. Oh, yeah. All the round. Oh, yeah. So they're it. on the back coming in, and the pub is on stage now with all yep. the people. And th- there's the uh, the woman there who runs the place, yeah. and they're wisecracking jokes. And then it breaks out into a song about stay on the road. And she's <laughs> like, no, no, you should stay here. And everyone in the bar is like, no, no, you should go. And they're like, hey, we just want some food to get warm before we go on our little hike here. Right. And that's as far as I got so far. But I'm afraid to Google if this is a musical already. Are coming eh, with my luck because you right. know I had a different movie picked out I wanted yes. to do. Yeah, what was that one again? I wanted to do Die Hard. Oh yeah, but you said somebody was but working on it. Somebody, no, somebody already did it. Oh, and it upset me greatly, so I had to search out a new one. Let's see, American Werewolf London musical. No, I don't, I don't see it. I think you're safe. All right, I think we're good to go on this one. I mean, so you, you'll have to get the rights eventually, but you're safe so far. I'll just keep working on it. 
I'll get that first song done and I'll update everybody at some point on how the first song went. And maybe we'll actually record it. Yeah. Because we could use it as like an intro in the middle between us talking and one of our guests. We should, yes. We it should would just be so random. We should definitely do it. And yes. only people who listen to all the episodes will know <laughs> what the hell it is. Yeah. And people will be frantically looking, I want to see this musical, <laughs> trying to get tickets for it. Maybe that'll lead them to the idiots and that'll be good in itself. Hey, that's all right. But so many plays. Are, are based on our, what we loved in the 80s. And there's two that I didn't mention in here because they weren't uh, on Broadway, but they were made into musicals, The Last Starfighter and Toxic Avenger, which, again, we talked about a few episodes ago. So just another, I guess, no, proof about the enduring uh, quality of the 1980s. So speaking of Phantom of the Opera, you know, again, in, in the interest of trying to keep this more engaging and interesting than <laughs> just talking about theater, I have something for you because um, folks that follow theater may be aware that Andrew Lloyd Webber is known you know, among some people as a plagiarist. Yes, a, thong, a song thief. Yeah. Now, you said about uh, great artists steal. You know? No, I, yes. Good artists write, right. great artists steal. So, and you can quote Ray on that. If you, if you use that in, real, in your life, <laughs> say that Ray said that. But when we talked to Hoche Anderson, you know, we were talking about originality, that they're really, what is it to be original? Maybe being original is just the fact that you made something. Sure, it's derivative, et cetera, et cetera. But, but in, in any case, there are some seeming a lot of examples of, of, um, of uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber just really copying a theme or something from somebody, something that came before. Oftentimes it's classical music, but I have one example for you which is not from classical music. And so I'll play you first. This is the theme from Phantom of the Opera. If what am I supposed to guess what he ripped off? Oh, if you could, do you need clues? This is going to be digging back. It actually sounds a little like Mr. Crowley from from Ozzy. You know, that's yeah, I could see that. So, this is going back maybe just a little bit farther than Mr. Crowley. It's a Pink Floyd song. You're, yeah, okay. you lost I'm me there, your buddy. House there, yeah. So okay. I'm not a Floyd fan. So this is a this is a clip from the beginning of a Pink, a Pink Floyd's song called Echoes. Tell me if you think this sounds the same or similar. Uh, he totally ganked that thing. <laughs> so yeah, if we were in court, this that evidence right there would uh, he'd be giving all his money to the Pink Floyd. Right <laughs> yeah, Roger Waters actually said he considered suing after he heard it. He said that, I couldn't believe it when I heard it. It's the same time signature. It's 12-8, which isn't a you know, terribly that's, common Yeah, that's incredibly silly. It's the same structure. It's the same notes. It's everything. Bastard. It's probably actionable. It really is. But he decided ultimately against, against suing Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, there's a lot of examples of this, which is kind of... Uh, hmm. I delight in those kinds of things because it makes it more interesting to me, but... Well, if he's getting away with it, kudos to him. Yeah. And there's examples also of him like sort of plagiarizing, I guess, from himself, where a latter production, you know, borrows a melody from an earlier one. And well, that's so like, um, what is it, uh, Cleveland's Clearwater Revival and John Fogarty when the, he sued, the record company sued him for stealing his own song? <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah, it actually happened. Oh, wow. We're going to have to talk about that at some point. Yeah, I'll have to get more. I'll have to actually look it up. But he yeah. actually did get sued by the record company right. for plagiarizing a song he wrote in a song he wrote later as a solo artist. Oh, I see. Well, you know, I, that does make sense to me. Um, but maybe it's not interesting to get into right now without all the information. But I can see yeah, why that we'll save be. that for later. So I was, this is, this is a, a theater story that I'm just looking for an opportunity to share, if only to exorcise myself, okay? So I liked theater, again, from an early age. So like you said, in elementary school, I did plays. 
And in high school, ultimately, I did plays and musical theater. So high school, production of Oklahoma. I've got to get this out there. Just It has to be known. You had a production of Oklahoma, and I played a character where um, he, I played Will, Will Parker, for, for those folks who know who that is. Um, he was a goofy cowboy, sort of, you know, second lead to the Does he romantic lead. Does the Oklahoma when the winds come? No, that's Curly. Curly ah, gets to see, see that it. one. You got robbed. No, I've got, I got a couple of other songs. And during one of those songs, what I have to do is, because we're doing a dance number. And by the way, if you see a high school show now, and you know, look, I love my, my children. <laughs> and I am a big fan of theater, but there's been so many times I've been in a production where I'm, I just can't wait for it to end. You know, and I'm talking about high school, but I know what it was like at the time, because at the time I was in these shows, you know, and, and literally doing this one music number, I thought I was Michael Jackson <laughs> in the sense that I had like a troop of dancers behind me, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, it was like the beaded video. Now you see the video, it's nothing <laughs> like that at all. In any case, I have to go off stage at one, one side of the stage, run backstage and then enter from the other side of the stage right into a dance move, like continuing to dance, you know? So when I get back, now, I, first, pause for a second. I had a very hot temper in high school. You no know, kid, into no young, kidding. Into young adulthood. <laughs> Fly off the handle very easily, you know. And um, I had a lot of undealt with uh, rage. Yes, no brown M&Ms you backstage. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I had a lot of riders in my contract. So when I get to run backstage during, like, opening night, the crowd of actors who are not going to be on stage for a while, or seen or so, are just sitting on the floor creating a traffic jam in which I have to now dive over them to get to the other side. Now, as I am jumping over them, because again, I have no control of my temper at this age. You look like OJ in the airport. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or, or fleeing to the, you know, fleeing a murder scene either way. But yes, I'm leaping over these people and I scream at the top of my lungs, Jesus Christ, <laughs> something to that effect, you know? And, um, and I, ha- I get hit back on the other stage, smiling, doing the dance numbers, right? So, you know, I felt bar- embarrassed about it, et cetera, <laughs> which was fine. You know, I thought, well, it, I felt embarrassed. Now, I was only more embarrassed when I ultimately watched the video that my parents made of my performance that night. Because when it got to that spot, clear as day, you could hear <laughs> oh, someone from backstage scream, Jesus Christ. <laughs> So technically, you were actually doing a production of Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> it was a twofer, yes. <laughs> it was the show within the show. All right. Well, in a moment, we'll be right back with my interview with Peter Felicia, theater critic and historian. Once again, it's time for... Our guest today has seen over 11,000 theatrical performances, and his credits are nearly as numerous. As theater critic at the Star Ledger in Newark, New Jersey, he reviewed productions for nearly two decades. As a historian, he's documented varied and interesting aspects of theater in his books, including Let's Put on a Musical, Broadway Musical MVPs, 1960 through 2010, Strippers, Showgirls, and Sharks, a very opinionated history of the Broadway musicals that did not win the Tony Award, and The Great Parade, Broadway's astonishing, never-to-be-forgotten, 1963-1964 season. Please welcome to the show, Peter Felicia. Hi. So, thank you for being on our show. I greatly appreciate it. Um, As... I mentioned in the introduction, you are the perfect person to speak to because of your the, the extensive knowledge, experience, and work you've done documenting, essentially, you know, theatrical history in a number of different ways. 
And so when we wanted to figure out uh, whether or not the 80, 1980s were best uh, for, for theater, uh, who better to turn to? So, so thank you for that. Glad to be here. And so taking a, a step back, and again, I, I should just say right off the bat, this will not surprise you, I am not an expert in this area. I'm an expert in very, very few areas, but... Um, uh, this Aren't is certain- we all when you come right down to it? <laughs> they say Francis Bacon was the last person in the world to know everything, and that was a long time ago. So sure. Right. We all do the best we can. Wow, I can compare myself to Francis Bacon now. This is a good day after all. So, so, but I know we need to take a step back. So I think we should anyway, just to give some perspective. And so again, you're the expert. By my limited understanding, theater or Broadway, I guess we should say specifically Broadway, because um, that's what we'll... we'll touch upon, and I think maybe we can make a comment more generally about other areas of theater throughout the country, but Broadway, as we understand it today, began, my understanding is, began in the 1940s. Is that correct? Well, um, the real Broadway theaters that we know today started in the early 1900s, but, um, and there was considered to be a golden age of the Broadway musical from about 1943 when Oklahoma opened. And then you get people who give different uh, end dates. Some say 1964 with Fiddler, some say 1966 with Cabaret, uh, some say 1975 with uh, Chorus Line. Gold is uh, panned differently by so many different people. But (laughs) the real bottom line is that um, Broadway became uh, healthy in the 80s because basically of the British invasion, as it's been chummily called. Um, That means that the British musicals came in and did very well. One was really not a British musical, and that's Les Miserables, but it was produced in France first, but it was really in London where it took off, and so then it came here. So the big mega musicals really started happening in the 80s, and that changed Broadway a great deal. And how is it that uh, it wasn't until the 1980s that we started uh, first seeing these, uh, you know, mega musicals? Because uh, up until then, um, for one thing, there were no computers, really, yes. um, that were working um, in uh, theater. It was um, pretty much a um, uh, mom-and-pop type of uh, technology. Right. And computers started coming in. As a result, sets could do more things and be more relied on. And so that helped as well. But it really was the British musical that made the 80s. Um, the other thing that uh, happened in the 80s that was really significant in 82 was Cats opening. Now, one of the reasons the Cats was so significant First off, it became the longest-running show in Broadway history. It would be Eclipse, right. but it became the longest-running show in Broadway history. But it also was a very important thing in getting parents to take kids to the theater. Up until then, most of the shows were for adults and for adults only. I don't mean that in a salacious way. I just meant that they dealt with sure. adult themes, and they didn't have any particular interest to children. But Cats was really a great kids' show, and parents started taking their kids to the theater. And when that happened, the kids started saying, hey, I want to go again. And so we had more shows that um, became kid-friendly, let's say, and um, that was significant. Also, what you have to remember um, is that in 1980, (laughs) if we're going to start there, it wasn't that long after Mm -hmm. President Ford said to the um, New York Drop Dead in that famous (laughs) um, headline that was in the New York Daily News, Times Square was not the greatest uh, in shape. Um, One could walk down 8th Avenue and be approached by a prostitute. There were many, many more. Um, porno stores here, there, and everywhere. Sure. Um, there was a lot of drug dealing on 42nd Street, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people had sworn off New York. That was it. They weren't going to go there. It was just too dangerous. 
And it was in the early 80s that the I Love New York commercial started airing. Oh, I love that And song. under those circumstances, it really helped the city. Uh, it made it look ha- friendly and happy. And mo- many of the commercials dealt with the theater itself. What was playing at the time made it look very exciting. Right. So that was important as well. And Cats and the idea of I Love New York were very significant in getting people to come to the theater again in the 80s, where they'd been somewhat avoiding it. And it's also true in the 1980s. We start seeing uh, on stage some other voices, other mm-hmm. perspectives, other... Uh, we had a big development with um, La Caja Fall. Now, La Caja Fall is, um, opened in late 83, but what was really significant about this is this was the first musical on Broadway to really, 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 really deal with gay themes. Uh, you may know the movie, if, even if you don't know the, uh, sure. the stage show. But um, it is about um, two men who have been living together for a long time. But b- b- before they got together, one of them spent a night with a woman. And when you know, she got pregnant. And they've been raising the kid because she didn't really be much of a mother. And so he's used to this, um, the idea of having two fathers. Uh, and no mother around. Um, it really helped pave the way for many gay shows that have followed. Many have. Um, certainly Falsettos and Fun Home come immediately to mind. And really, this was the one that set the table for that. So that was significant as well. Um, but uh, really, <laughs> if there's any evidence you need, more than anything else, that you can say, well, the 80s were significant and pop culture in that way, You've got to look to Phantom of the Opera because <laughs> it opened in late, um, well, early 88, actually, and it's still here. <laughs> uh, this is not a mistake I've made. You say, oh, you mean 98? You mean 2008? No, 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 no. No, no, I mean 1988. That's what I mean because that's what it opened and that's where it still is. Um, so they've uh, been running 31 years. They should have a pa- party at Baskin Robbins, I think, you know, with 31 flavors. <laughs> right. so, um, so that is really uh, significant as well, but before that, the hot ticket was the year before, which was Les Miserables, again, a British show that did extraordinarily well. So there are a lot of things you can look at here that were very, very significant, even though a lot of people say, well, you know, in terms of production, Broadway production was really down in the 80s. There weren't many shows. In fact, one year, the Tony Awards couldn't even find enough nominees to nominate in certain categories. They had to eliminate categories. Yeah, but uh, actors keep acting and plays keep attracting, and seats are not easy to buy, Oscar Hammerstein wrote uh, a long time ago. And uh, that turned out to be true in the 80s as well. I grew up in New Jersey, on the, in Jersey City, New Jersey, so right on the Hudson River there for folks that don't know. And grew up seeing, you know, the, the commercials uh, for, for Broadway shows and off-Broadway sure. shows are some of my earliest memories. And at the time, I didn't understand that uh, not every, well, most people that still live in New Jersey today don't understand there's a world outside of New Jersey. Pennsylvania is like the West Coast of it. <laughs> I loved going to New York as a young person and, you know, into adulthood, and I worked there for some years. But, but it was and still remains fascinating to me that so many people live there that don't take advantage of everything New York has to offer because it's, you know, across the, across the other side of a river. It's funny you say that because I was talking to Rita Moreno the other day, uh, the woman who wow. played Anita in West Side Story. Of and course. Won an Oscar for it. In fact, she was one of the first EGOT. Do you know that term? Of Emmy, course, Grammy, yes. Oscar Tony. Um, she was one of the first ones to do that. So anyway, um, I was reminiscing that um, uh, when my little boy was watching Sesame Street, she was on once, yes. and she played the Statue of Liberty. And, <laughs> um, and she comes into a guy's apartment and says, oh, look, I've got to sit down. I mean, I'm exhausted. I've been scared. You don't know how long I've been And he says, well, what do you want to do? Can I get you a book to read? And, uh, yes, please, because I'm telling you, I've, this is the only book I've had that I've been holding, and I've got to get another book. Anyway, he says, so... Um, 
what do you want to do? Do you want to go out? Do you want to, um, maybe we'll go to the top of the Empire State Building? She says, you know, I've lived in New York all my life, and I've never been to the Empire State Building. <laughs> you know, and, of course, that's the metaphor for the fact that a lot of people yes. live here and don't do anything. <laughs> Once they're here, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really too bad. And I think one of the reasons is they feel, well, I live here. I can do it tomorrow, and then tomorrow never comes. Oh, wow. Yeah, live for today. But when I when I would see those Broadway commercials as a kid, I, I didn't understand that that they you know the hope was that people would uh, it would attract a, a national audience. Oh yeah, that's what the I Love New York campaign was for. And I suppose for for some of the for, for people that couldn't make it to New York, that um, their first exposure to you know Broadway musicals w- would have been in film. You know, some stage shows that were adapted uh, to movies. I, I know there were a, certainly a couple in the 80s that um, I, I loved. That's significant because a lot of shows in the 80s were not getting made into mu- movies anymore. And part of the reason for that is that after The Sound of Music had this wildly successful movie in 1965, um, studio executives said, oh, I guess people want to see movie musicals. So they brought out a million of them, and most of them were terrible. Um, so movie musicals suddenly were tanking, and so as a result, you weren't seeing them anymore. They just were not happening. Um, yeah, Annie happened, yeah, but very few others did. I mean, it was a lot of them were, you've heard the expression straight to video. Well, usually that means, of course, a movie is made and then it goes straight to video. What happened here with a lot of shows were actually filmed as videos in the theater and they were released, uh, but not in movie theaters. It was, you know, the VHS revolution took place, of course, during this period of time, too. So people were buying tapes of uh, uh, Cats and Sunday in the Park with George and Into the Woods. Um, those weren't movies originally. I mean, uh, certainly we now know that. Um, Phantom and, um, I'm sorry, um, Into the Woods uh, got made into a movie, and so did Nine. Um, but a lot of these things were getting videos, um, and um, that was cheaper because there they were in the theater. They were already there. So um, so that was happening. So there was less, less interest in Hollywood, in Broadway during the 80s, and it took a while. And especially even the big hit from the late 70s, Annie, just didn't uh, turn out the way that people wanted it to. Um, Martin Sharnan, who uh, conceived Annie and directed it and wrote the lyrics for it, always used to joke and said, I hear they've made a movie of Annie, you know, pretending like he didn't even know it happened because he was so embarrassed by it. Um, but it has I found a life, too. It has found a life, too, because of um, tape and DVD, because uh, little kids will watch sure. it and like it, and so that's good enough, and parents will have their kids watch anything rather than babysit them. So, um, you know, it's been very popular. I love that movie. That's one of the... I'm fortunate that... There you are! <laughs> My, my, there you are. I'm, I'm fortunate that my dad actually was in love with musicals. So from his era, you know, and so movies that we would watch on the couch together not only included, you know, James Bond and uh, Man with No Name uh, westerns or other spaghetti westerns, but were musicals, you know. So uh, Seven Brides, West Side Story, uh, uh-huh. sure, Sound of Music. All these. So uh, would be a daddy. So, He's a good daddy. Yes, and so I got to see those, and then we would watch, you know, on uh, I guess it was what Masterpiece Theater would have some of those those live tapes that you're talking about, some shows there. One of the things I read was that, uh, and you, you had talked about the golden age of theater and sort of there's a, you know, maybe people disagree as to when it ended, mm-hmm. but that when it did end, and one theory I read was that it ended maybe in the 60s because it was popular in that heyday in the 40s because it you, it was using the popular music to to speak to the people and tell these stories, and, but then it got stuck. And so come the 60s, that music is now passe, and so when you're trying to communicate to this new generation of folks using an old style of music, they're not interested in hearing it. And although we had some rock musicals that made some attempts, you know, in the 60s and 70s, they weren't as successful and maybe even seemed, you know, uh, inauthentic. But that 
come the 80s, you know, with uh, Phantoms, obviously, later in the decade, but even earlier on, you, I guess, you know, with uh, Joseph, um, that you have a return to using a more popular form of music at the time to, to tell the stories. Well, yeah, there are a number of um, uh, points to be made about that. Yes, there's no question that uh, up until the Rock Revolution, the popular songs of the days tended to come from Broadway shows. People would routinely hear a song and say, what's that from? Um, so, yes, that was very true. Rock came in, of course, in the mid-50s, and suddenly it dominated the charts. And one of the reasons that um, rock really got significant um, was the fact that the baby boomer generation, starting in 1946, when they turned to be 16, 17, or 18, which we're talking about 62, 63, 64, suddenly they were working. They were still living at home, but they were working. Now, in the old days, the previous generation, which has often been called the greatest generation, when they worked, they gave their money over to their parents because everybody needed money, especially during the Depression and the war sure. years. Things were tough. Okay. But now it was prosperity, and the new generation of parents during the baby boomer era were intent on saying, my kids are going to have a better life than I've had. And that's when parents started paying for college and all this kind of stuff and paying for apartments and you know doing what they could for their kids. Well, as a result, the kids making money had disposable income. And while when they were growing up, they begged their parents for 89 cents to buy single records Suddenly, they'd had enough money to buy long-playing records, as they were called. They didn't play that long, but that's right. what they were called. <laughs> you know, usually, yes. it was about 35 minutes. To, they could go up to an hour, but usually, you know, six songs aside, you know, it turned out to be that. Right. So suddenly, they had the power, and suddenly, they, there were a lot of alternative publications that were cropping up in those days. I'm from Boston, and we had Boston After Dark, which was really aimed at the college crowd. And suddenly, there was trying to be a respectability for rock music that hadn't been in the uh, 50s when it uh, belonged of people were considering it noise and junk. And suddenly there were rock critics that were showing up around who were really making a case for the fact that rock music was very good. Uh, Ethan Morton, who's a wonderful musical theater historian, the best of us all, frankly, um, once pointed out that in 1956, the biggest selling album of all time, I don't mean in the show category, I mean everywhere, you name it, country music, Religious music, Hawaiian music, (laughs) pop music, jazz. The biggest selling album, everything taken into consideration, was My Fair Lady. No record in the history of mankind had ever sold more copies of My Fair Lady by the end of the 50s. That was the champ. That was the champ. The West Side Story soundtrack was on the charts for five years. Wow. Okay, fine. But... The thing was that, um, and of course, West Side Story appealed to the kids too. It was, a, you know, it was t- about teenagers, so that helped as well. But once, um, anyway, so that was the big album in fifty six, fifty seven. All right, what happened in sixty seven? Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Sure. You know, that's what everybody was buying then because the kids had the money, and suddenly, of course, whatever kids do, they always um, want to eclipse what their parents did in any way they possibly can. <laughs> and of course, kids believe they know everything, and parents know nothing. So as a result, you know, they had to spurn their parents' music, which was the Broadway musical. I see. Um, it, it had, it, they, you couldn't get a good review for a musical from Boston After Dark, I'll tell you, because it was a musical, and therefore it was just very old-fashioned. Yeah, they went for Hair, and Hair, of course, wound up being a very big album as well. Um, 
until recently, it was the longest. Uh, it was the show um, album that reached number one and stayed at number one uh, for a few weeks, and that that didn't happen after um, in the seventies or eighties, nineties, or even a little after. So, so as a result, you know, yes, that was part of the reason why. Another reason, which is a very good reason, is that musical theater writers, especially under the influence of Stephen Sondheim, um, the greatest composer lyricist we've ever had, um, well, he he was upping the form. He was making it better. And he was really writing songs that were so specific to what was going on in the show that you really couldn't lift them out of the show. Right. Um, they were just, uh, the, there were character names in them, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. They were so specific to the moment, which made the shows great. But, you know, you wouldn't listen to uh, some of the songs that he would he would write um, in, in the context of a popular song. Right. Uh, he did wind up having a mammoth popular song with Send in the Clowns, but that really was such, such a freak thing that, um, uh, that uh, people were surprised. It didn't, it didn't even do the show any good. It became popular after the show had closed. You know, so that was uh, a big problem. But um, uh, you know, you're just not going to get uh, hit songs from Sondheim um, because he's writing for his characters. He, that's what's most important to him. And uh, he's not going to The Ladies Who Lunch is a Sondheim song. <laughs> Does that sound like a pop hit to you? I mean, no. you know, so it doesn't. So and, and so, therefore, in a way, musicals got better. But by getting better, they did uh, leave the pop market behind, uh, and, and the pop market left them behind. So that was the real problem that happened. And really, I don't ever think we're going to return to an era where we're going to get songs originating in musicals that um, are going to be popular. Ironically enough, there are plenty of popular songs right now on Broadway, but that's because there are shows about songwriters like Carole King, uh, who wrote uh, the show about her as beautiful. Um, Shows like that um, proliferate, um, and we haven't seen the last of them. And uh, Or they might be songs about group, like Ain't Too Proud, which is about the Temptations. So you, you go in there knowing the songs already. So there's a lot of that going on on Broadway now but um but that that's something that a lot of people object to but to be frank that's something that really wasn't happening very much in uh, the 80s yeah. not uh, so this will uh, confirm your thesis that yeah, the 80s were a good decade <laughs> yes they were yeah hey don't forget mary head one night in bangkok that was one of my favorites yes it indeed was, it, was, it took a while before i knew that was from a musical i you know i loved it on the radio before i knew it was from a musical it is a good song that's the last one i can think of though maybe so in, in thinking about price uh, of a ticket, and that's one of the biggest disappointments I have now, you know, is that it's, it's so difficult. It's, of course. It, it's the arts just generally seem so important to, you know, expanding minds. Uh, and oftentimes, as you mentioned, you know, some of the, we were talking about uh, Lacage and I think about Torch Song and um, uh, Ma Rainey and, and different things, different shows that we, where we heard different uh Voices, uh, Night Mother, different uh, perspectives that we sure. probably hadn't heard sure. until in the eighties. That it's unfortunate that it's cost so much to now be ex- exposed to you know social issues and, and and again perspectives that you wouldn't maybe otherwise get to see you know. And it's it's now for it seems like a, a, a more elite class of of people. I was surprised in my research that I it, it cost. I think I saw anywhere from well, I think the I think it was when I was. Reading early shows, you saw like twenty five dollars maybe in the eighties. You could still get a ticket, and I think they talked about some shows that they had bumped up the price to forty five dollars. And I don't, I didn't do research. Forty five was what they missed was charging. Okay. Forty five for the best seats, first row, dead center. 
$45. By 80s dollars, how is that? Yeah, uh, well, um, they went up, uh, see, in the old days, they went up like a dollar at a time, and then suddenly they started going up $5 at a time, and then they started going up more than that. Um, but um, I remember when Jerome Robbins Rob Broadway, um, which was also an 80s show and uh, one of Tony's best musical, Jerome Robbins um, did the aforementioned West Side Story and uh, worked on A Funny Thing Happened on the Way of the Forum and had a lot of uh, hit shows. He, he basically gave up Broadway after he did Fiddler on the Roof in 1964. He decided to do ballet work instead. But the thing was that um, he did have a very popular show, but it was going to be expensive, and the tickets then went up to $50, and people were just aghast. People were aghast when the producers went up to $100. Now think about that. Jerome Robbins Broadway is 1989. Okay, The producers, 2001. So in 12 years, it doubled. Yeah. Now, inflation doesn't go that high. I mean, you look at an inflation calendar. Well, I mean, for years, um, they worked very hard to keep it under $10. Um, it went over $10 in 1965. And um, the thing is, if you take a look at what theater tickets were then, you can use your inflation calendar to see what $12 would be today. Yeah. It comes out to be less than 80 So theater tickets, <laughs> if they were to keep pace with inflation and not eclipse the inflation, we are talking that theater tickets, the best seat should be $80. And <laughs> if you pay $80 for a musical, bring the binoculars. <laughs> yes, and a tissue for the nose, the bleeding nose. Indeed. Good for you. Yeah. yeah. It's, so, it's so sad. Yeah, it's so sad. It sad. is. And, no. Gratefully, I guess regular folks are still getting to see them, but you know, at what cost to them? I mean, well, regular folks is a good way of putting it because there's another issue here. Um, yep. The Broadway League some years ago did a survey, and um, this is the trade organization for Broadway. They did a survey, and what they discovered is what a heavy theater goal was. Heavy. Okay. Now, I'm not talking that the seats aren't wide enough. I'm talking about somebody who's really yes. interested and goes all the time. Yes. And is just okay. paying attention and lives for it. That person goes four times a year. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't think that's very much. <laughs> no, no, no. That was years ago. Yeah. And that's before tickets really started exploding. When um, producers started, the producers' musical is what I mean, uh, started something called premium seats. Hmm. You know, the, the best seats uh, cost uh, a lot more. If you want to sit really, really close, yeah, you're going to have to pay tremendously for that. So, um, you know, so I have a feeling a heavy theater goer today goes twice a year. Right. That's, um, again, that's a guess. I'm not saying I've seen that statistic. But the four times a year was a statistic as a heavy theater goer. But, of course, that I doubt. I don't even think tickets were mm, $100 when that survey was made. So uh, I really think it's, uh, you know, for an anniversary or a birthday, somebody will spring for it. But that's going to be the end of it. So in, in thinking about price, it sort of leads me to the, the next thing I wanted to mention, and maybe the last thing, because I know I've been keeping you for a while here, and I certainly appreciate talking with you, but about touring companies. So, you had, you know, we talked about Cats a little bit and um, about how it's, you know, among uh, was it one of the early musicals, at least during that period of time, where families could feel comfortable bringing their kids. They knew nothing salacious was going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. What I saw was, and again, in reading something, it seemed that, uh, Cats was also, you know, I don't know if it was because of regional theaters or there was some sort of touring infrastructure at the time, but that people throughout the country were getting to see it. And that was, for a lot of folks, their first exposure to, you know, quote, Broadway theater was in their hometown. Yes, a lot of a lot of reasons for this um, yeah. include, one, um, Cameron McIntosh, who produced Cats, thought it was very important to have every city see what Broadway saw, meaning the set being exactly the same, down to the next, uh, the very next nail on the uh, in, in the back holding up the uh, the wood. It was very important to him that that happened. And up until then, 
Occasionally, you'd get a show that would use the New York set traveling, but for the most part, they usually would dumb down, so to speak, because sure. uh, you know the, you had to do these things on trucks. They would go from city to city. Rarely did a show play more than a month in a, a city. Usually, they were two weeks, and sometimes they're even one-nighters. So, as a result, you didn't want to lug these trucks around. So, as a result, um, you, you got uh, a lesser product. And Cameron McIntosh didn't want to do that. But as a result, of course, costs went up. So that was a, a significant factor as well. The other thing too is a lot of cities started getting a lot of feeling about civic pride about these rundown, dumpy, um, unused theaters of yore that used to be big movie palaces. Hmm. So there was a great attempt to save these movie palaces, which used to have 2,000, 3,000 seats. I mean, Radio City has 6,600, but like, for example, uh, what was called the Metropolitan Theater in Boston had 4,400. So these were big places, and it was worth renovating them because then you would get these touring companies of Les Miserables and Phantom and what have you to come to your city. Right. And that's a very important thing to a lot of cities. They want this cultural um, achievement. And so that was a big factor as well. I will never forget going to the very first performance. Um, it was a preview performance. It wasn't the opening night. It was before that of 42nd Street. What David Merrick had done was invite the Democratic National Committee. This was 1980, and they were holding their con uh, convention in New York City. And he was a big Democrat. And he says, look, you know, uh, first performance, uh, why don't you come? You know, so you're invited guests. So, every, so I happened to be uh, there. And it was so amazing when people came into the Winter Garden, which has about, I don't know, 1,500 seats maybe, and everybody's saying, you can throw from other parts of the country. It's so small, you know, because the theaters <laughs> in their town, you know, had two, three. They expected sure. Broadway was going to be bigger. Right. You know, why wouldn't they? Yes. So, um, so, so that was a big factor as well that really started helping. And that was something that started in the 80s as well, that uh, theaters were being rescued. Yes, I nailed it. <laughs> I suspected yes, you did. that. Yes, you did. I had suspected and hoped, and hoped that. <laughs> If you had to say what the best decade for theater was, based on whatever metrics you want to use, what would, what would you say it would, be, would have been, or is? This sounds like an odd way to start it, but I will say that it's often been said that a, a woman always dresses uh, the way she looked at the height of her beauty. And similarly speaking, I think <laughs> when you first discover theater, whatever that is, that's the era that you love the best. And, wow. you know, I'm no kid by any means. I'm the quintessential baby boober. And as a result, I discovered it in the 60s. So the 60s will always be my favorite. And um, <laughs> I am sure that a lot of shows that I just thought were magnificent beyond belief really weren't. But, you know, <laughs> I, I still had stars in my eyes. And as a well, result, uh, you know, that's why it'll always be that way for me. So uh, that's good. the curse of getting older. You know, you can't recapture your youth, <laughs> even your youthful spirit or your youthful uh, <laughs> way of looking at things. So, uh, so that's the curse that we all endure, but we all have our memories. Well, with that, I'll say thank you, Peter. I certainly appreciate your time tonight. Good. Good talking to you, too. So, so right so, now that you've heard the interview with Peter Felicia, what do you think? Do you think that we uh, proved anything? I think that we did what we set out to do as usual. Yes. And you know what that is. Of course. You don't even have to say it. But I'm going we'll to talk to you next. Oh, okay. no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm going to say it because eventually I'm getting T-shirts made. Um, yes. um, we have proved beyond yes. a shadow of a doubt right. that theater in the 80s right. was groundbreaking and better than any other decade's theater. Absolutely. And, you know, he may have been acting just now. 
uh, which would be mm. apropos of, you know, this theater. Uh, At least I wasn't having a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.